This is Euroscopic, a podcast brief about what happened this week, how we got here, and where we're going. I'm William Glucroft. And this is Martin Guck. You can find this podcast and other essays at our Substack, euroscopic.substack.com. And of course, you can subscribe wherever your ears go for podcasts. Like, comment, share, you know the drill. If you like it, let us know and a friend or two of yours as well. This episode was recorded on Wednesday, July 26th, 2023. I meant to say that I love um, that you're sticking with the pandemic era bookcase as your preferred backdrop. Um, well, it- it's not, see, so what happens is that this is not quite a, a set. These are actually, look, they're books. Do you read? Those are real books? Those are things that you can open and there, there are letters inside. Look. This, this is, I don't know, yeah, I know, over on TikTok. They don't, they don't let us have books on TikTok. I know, well, that's what I hear, but this is why I'm keeping them. Um, this is why I keep myself in papyrus.com. But I only buy literature. I only read literature. I don't read anything that has been written in the last 60 or 70 years. Um, yeah, nobody yeah. nobody needs things from people that are still alive. I think we should at some point discuss the state of culture, right? I do. Well, this, um, I mean, this week this week would be. A, I mean, this week we are in the grips of the of the IP overlords with uh, the Barbie movie and the Oppenheimer. I just uh, I just cannot really even get started with the Barbie movie. I mean, this shows the power of this PR machine, right? Which you have enough, you pay, you can pay enough influencers uh, across various digital platforms, and all of a sudden it looks like everybody's actually talking about this crap. When, as a matter of fact, it's really just pay goons uh, who are mixing themselves into the crowd. So you know, 1921 anarchist style, just put a couple of rebel <laughs> rousers into the crowd and have them cover their face, they will never know they were actually working for the government. Um, but speaking of old, speaking of there being no new ideas and us being trapped in sort of this 1990s nostalgia, uh, you know, the, the silly story of the week for me was the the Mickey D's chicken nuggets, McNuggets uh, lawsuit, where an eight-year-old girl in Florida won, was awarded $800,000 for being burned by a McNugget four years ago when she was four years old. And um, I just couldn't, you know, this just harkens back to the 19, early 1990s, the famous coffee case, which is right. why we all now need to be coddled by uh, corporate America to be told that uh, our hot beverages are hot. I mean, the, the, the coffee case was remarkable because on the one hand, it was actually a, a very serious burn. I, I actually took yes. the trouble back reading through through the story. I mean. Uh, and there was, of course, a lot of uh, technical measurements as to the optimal temperature of of, uh, yes. of coffee. And it turns out that this uh, elderly lady that got burned had a very, very severe burns. You know, we usually complain about European regulation. But I mean, as mm. a matter of fact, one of the, the things that the U.S. has produced is sort of regulatory vigilantism, right? I mean, the, what the government will not do, you have essentially various forms of ambulance chasers, yeah. uh, lawyers different sorts, which consider themselves, I mean, like demigods in many cases, uh, sort of making absolutely sure that, you know, more and more and more and more regulations uh, will produce, will be produced. Obviously, one cannot judge what the situation for this, for this child was. Uh, but I mean, it is quite clear that, 
you know, the hand, the lawyerly hand is 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 over <laughs> all this thing to be seen, right? The the not so invisible lawyerly hand. I mean, right. I, you made a good point because the, the woman in the early 90s, the coffee case, um, she was vilified in the press and she kind of became a, you know, a thing of legend um, as someone who sort of took advantage of the system. But she was seriously burned. I think the bigger question is in both of these cases is if you look, if you just compare the U.S. and Germany, the U.S., you can walk away with millions of dollars in pain and suffering. And in Germany, you might walk away with a thousand Um I think it's it's not so much whether people have the right to sue for damages. It's it's just kind of eye popping how much the extent to which you could yeah. get uh, in in the U.S. Uh, you know, how do you put a price on pain, pain and suffering that an emotional damage? I don't know. Um, whereas in Germany, you have the other extreme where good luck getting anybody to pay up for your pain and suffering, pain and suffering. Uh, that's not yeah. their problem. I think that that's actually a very interesting point. It's a delicate balance in some sense. Obviously, a second ago, I was actually bemoaning the the the, the emergence of the lawyerly class, which is actually essentially just, you know, trading and producing jobs, by the way, because obviously the moment that you have to take care of making sure that the coffee is at the right temperature, then there has to be an administrator, a certificator, right. a temperature, or thermometer, <laughs> etc. So, I mean, in some sense, it's very useful. But on the other hand, I think that what should be recognized, keeping in mind the absolute dismal state of, of customer customer uh, uh, protection or, or consumer protection uh, across Europe, really, and Germany being particularly, particularly awful, uh, is that as a matter of fact, um, this kind of threat uh, of, of you know economic punishment for companies would probably go a very long way in, in Europe and particularly in Germany to improve the state of play for industry, economics, commerce, uh, and uh, innovation. The point is, I can understand all of these things and limitations, but at some point, specifically, the question is, if you're going to sell a service that you're not delivering, then you're actually stealing. And this is something that, in Germany in particular, happens across the board. You can see this sort of in the in the transportation system. You can see this in like the service industries. It, it's really just breathtaking in a way. You know, this is a week full of sort of the public square, uh, you know, having its voice heard. I guess the big story, maybe you want to take this. I know this is your bread and butter, Martin, is the Spanish elections. We thought that we would see the PP, the Partido Popular, which is essentially the center right with some really sort of far right leanings, um, take the first position and then become government to succeed uh, Pedro Sanchez. Uh, we knew that they would, everybody knew, not just we, but that there would they would not have enough votes, so they would need actually a junior partner. They had pretty much accepted that their junior partner would be a bunch of like, you know, fascist fossils. Pedro Sanchez came in with a lot more votes than was expected, uh, which means that essentially the PP and the right cannot form government. Okay, so fast tracking the issue, how will this play out? Well, the socialists also need a junior partner. They don't have enough with their sort of association of groups. The, the thing that is truly crazy about this is that now to stop the fascists, essentially emerging into Madrid, what you need is once again, the Republican Catalonians, uh, many of them in exile. Uh, in fact, Carlos Puigdemont is still in, in Brussels. So the question is, what is that they're going to be asking of Pedro Sanchez in order to basically do one of two things, either give him the votes of the bloc or abstain? Uh, because in fact, in order to become government in Spain, 
you need to have not only positive votes, but you need to have more positive votes in the parliament than negative votes, that votes against you. So this is actually the reason why the PP cannot make it in. One of the things that the Catalonians could ask is essentially an amnesty for everybody. Uh, that would make, of course, Sanchez extremely unpopular in a lot of the center, center right. Uh, but it might be a price that they decide to ask for. It would be a very risky business because if actually Sanchez says no, he could call a second set of elections that would come in December. And then at that point, it might well be that people scared of the Catalonians going completely crazy from Brussels. And I'm talking here about the UNS, the, the independentists. They would actually move to the right and bring Vox, so essentially the fascist party, into the government. You know, it, it feels like yesterday, but of course it was before the pandemic, that, you know, secession was at the heart of Europe, that one of um, Europe, one of Europe's major economies was literally facing the very real possibility of losing its most industrious, one of its most economically important regions uh, of the country. And there was this manhunt for Puigdemont. There was, you know, he was, it was like, it was like a, a bad Hollywood action thriller. And five years later, six years later, he's the kingmaker. Yes, it is. It is breathtaking. I mean, and if you think of Puigdemont, I mean, visually, it's really not exactly Indiana Jones, right? I mean, it's a, a man with too much of a, of, a, of bangs uh, directly above his eyes. He does need a haircut, that's true. Uh, but the fact is that he has managed to, I think it's a combination of him managing actually to maneuver himself in a position of a lot of power, because actually, as you just mentioned, Catalonia remains economically very powerful, although they systematically get the short end of the stick. So there was a set of demands that were administrative, fiscal, and infrastructural demands, because there is also a problem with development in Catalonia. They have a lot of money that they produce, but they don't get money back even for infrastructural development. So it could be that that mm. is actually what Pujimon decides to request. He remains in Brussels, he remains a year deputy, uh, and that is the way that the, 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 the request goes. So I feel like, much like Italy, elections are always happening in Spain. So tell me, why does this matter? Let's say that we actually were to have an election in December, uh, and the PP were, were to come in with more votes uh, and enough to actually just bring Vox into government. Uh, now what you would have is a coalescing far-right uh, wave around Europe. So Vox would actually have renewed force. And this means that actually people associated with Meloni, with Orban, uh, with the PIS in Poland, uh, you know, with the right in the in Scandinavian countries would actually begin to look like a more solid bloc that could have major, major effects in the European Union. One of the effects would be actually potentially to introduce changes in the commission and bring some very disagreeable characters into the commission. You could find yourself in a situation which you have, you know, the position that Borrell has now, which is foreign policy, uh, disastrous as he is. I mean, he truly is a catastrophe, but at least he's not a Nazi. So I think that, you know, this is something that could actually change the way that somebody who has held ambiguous relations with Russia, for instance, uh, like the people around Meloni, around Salvini, which in Italy is part of the is part of the alliance, uh, Vox itself, which has had sort of strange relations with uh, ideologically right wing Russian groups. I mean, you know, there is really quite a list of this um, could, for instance, radically shift 
you know, the way in which Europe approaches Russia and Ukraine. You know, this always feels like to me like a zombie movie, like the zombies are, are coming and you can <laughs> you can you can fight them and you can kill them. But at some point they break through and then they attack you and then you become the zombie. And so who attacks you when you're the zombie? You know, that that dramatic, the dramatic scene in the zombie film where, you, you know, your loved one who you've been defending against the zombies becomes a zombie herself. Uh, what do you do? You have to kill the you have to kill the person you love. And right. um, that's how I always feel this about, the, the you know, the, these far right or anti-democratic forces creeping into the center of European power. Well, what happens when European power itself is run by these far right or anti-democratic forces. That's a great analogy because as a matter of fact, we have seen it, right? I mean, they yeah. could live in Merkel love, Merkel love Renzi, uh, then von der Leyen love Conte. And by the time that Conte made Draghi fall, which essentially was actually the most popular politician in Italy by the time that he was brought down by Conte, um, you know, at that point, I mean, Obviously, the European Union Brussels began to see essentially its little lovely Italy sort of fall into the hands of these dark forces. So where else uh, are we going then? What else, what else did we see this week that uh, caught your eye, Martin? Well, let me ask you, what were you following? You can't, you can't ask back what I, what, I, what I asked. That's bad improv play. It is true. I mean, but I never had improv training. So, oh, you know, it's well, like... All right. Well, I mean, the, I, what I find fascinating are these stories of tourism versus climate change, especially all across Europe, as Greece once again burns out of control um, and other hotspots, you know, tourist hotspots. There's this there's this question of, you know, tourism is important economically. I think I saw a figure something like two billion euros it generates for for, for the for Europe, the European Union overall. Um, but at the same time, tourism is a a driving factor of climate change. Uh, horrible has horrible ecological impacts in in areas where that tourism takes place, and B is very unpleasant for the tourists when they're there if their resort is on fire. Policymakers are all for climate change uh, mitigation or or reduction, and know what know what the answers are, the solutions are. We know we have to consume less. We know we can't fly as much, and yet. For the economy's sake, we have to fly, we have to travel, we have to consume. I mean, I think that also against the backdrop of very, very concrete um, economic needs that ultimately also latch onto questions of political stability, right? So, I mean, if you have had three years of a very slow moving machine, uh, obviously, I mean, and we have talked about, I mean, often, at least in, in journalistic circles, I mean, we have heard a lot about the the blessings, the environmental blessings of the pandemic. I mean, they turned the waters of Venice into crystal crystal lakes in which you could see dolphins and mermaids just sort of <laughs> going through, through, uh, through La Serenissima's channels. But I think that the point is that you also have a lot of people that need to eat and need to get to their job and need to feed their children. And, and, and many of those are tour operators and many of those are, you know, uh, people picking up olives in order to sell olive oil to tourists and, and so on and so forth. Uh, so it is really uh, a very big question. Also, the fact is that a lot of the environmental impact policies uh, that are kind of being navigated uh, in a more gentile manner, gentle manner, sorry, in Europe, are then exported, right? So, I mean, if basically most of your dirty, your dirty laundry is being done in China, uh, and then the water, the gray water is being thrown into sort of, you know, the sea, 
uh, as they say, I mean, the idea, I think that the idea of a European, you know, environmental policy without seriously addressing China and India and so on and so forth, to which we contribute economically, essentially is like yeah, having a swimming pool with a urinator and non-urinator section. But these are issues that, you know, I don't think are easily addressable. And I think that one of the problems with this is that, uh, as you have seen, is that the far right of the type that just sort of popped up in Spain, that just popped up in, in, in Holland with the tractor people, as you might remember, which ultimately kind of brought down the Rute, the Rute government uh, in Le, Le, the Gilets Jaunes uh, in France. I mean, a lot of these people are actually, um, you know, not to mention, I mean, Germany, IFD, where there is a lot of uh, environmental skepticism. Uh, they are latching on to many of these policies as essentially uh, policies that are going to directly affect the economic of, of, of families on the ground, which gives once again this very large space for political, you know, for political exercise to some very unsavory, uh, very unsavory um, groups and operators. It, it, you know, it's a development happening this week, but I feel like I'm just stuck in Groundhog's Day because you can you can you can pre-write these stories the last several summers. Every summer now is the worst summer ever, the worst wildfires ever. I don't even know how Greece has and it, parts of Italy still have trees to burn, to be perfectly honest. I mean, I can tell you that, uh, you know, of my Italian life in Puglia. Um, so two days ago, I talked to uh, to close friends who were reporting uh, in the in the province of Bari. Uh, there is a city called Casamassima, which is an important commercial center. It was 49 degrees. Uh, you know, 49 Unreal. degrees. It's, it's truly it's truly remarkable, truly remarkable. So, you know, I think that a lot of people were thinking, well, you know, yes, it's going to get hot, but it's going to be over the next 30 years. Maybe my great grandchildren will actually, you know, see their see their see their their blood essentially evaporate as they step out uh, to yeah. go for milk. Uh, it turns out that it was just like three months away. Yeah, uh, the earth, by the time those great grandkids are around, the earth will be Venus, I think. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, I mean, I think that it, it took a lot of people, including political groups, by surprise. Uh, we don't know what kind of impact that will have in electoral processes. But what we do know is that it will have no impact at all in the business community, uh, and we, it will have no impact at all on sort of market economy projects, which will, you know, continue to insist that, you know, well, regulation is just not good for us. The thing that I'm actually, uh, the, the big one for me this week is, uh, we didn't mention it at all in the last couple of uh, minutes, but it's Israel, um, which is Israel is going- Dancing around, we're, we've been dancing around the golden calf, I would say. Yeah, yes, we have. I mean, the problem is that everybody in Germany is afraid of touching it. And obviously if we touch it, uh, you know, we, we, we run certain risks, but- um, yeah. the even the German, is, Although even the German government, I think today uh, said they are gravely concerned with developments in Israel. Are you absolutely sure there was not a question mark at the end of the statement? I I, I will not speak to question marks or not, would, would, but uh, I, I believe I, the quote was was serious or grave concerns, depending how you want to translate it exactly. So we might be somewhat unsafe territory. I mean, we should. I think we should thank Benjamin Netanyahu for at least making it somewhat more politically pal palpable or palatable uh, to be able to criticize Israel in places like Germany, thanks to his uh, you know, his coalitions and current governments extremely 
nationalistic and, and far-right religious bent. It's it's at least made certain previously uh, uns, unspeakable or, or, or un, impolite conversation uh, a little bit more acceptable to say in, uh, in polite company. I would say that I would grant him three three things. The first one is the one indeed you just mentioned. Uh, Europeans and particularly Germans have found uh, some way, even if it's with sort of conspicuous question marks at the end, such as, you know, we're gravely concerned by what's happening in Israel. Uh, talking like, you know, a sophomore, sophomore girl up talking just to make sure that the, quest, that the statement is not confused with a full on condemnation. The second one is, as a matter of fact, that I think it has shaken the Jewish community uh, across the board, particularly in the U.S., out of this sort of zombified complacency in which, well, yes, maybe they smell a little bit, but they're, you know, they're members of the tribe. Exactly, exactly. They're mishpucha and therefore, you know, it's okay. I think that that's actually completely over. Uh, and surprising to me, it was not as Netanyahu was pushing, you know, Orban's conspiracy theories against the international Jew that is Soros, of course, but it's now where actually he has directly attacked the Jewish community in the US and so on. The third thing, uh, and I think to me, this is really the big one, is that by um, completely, the complete unintended consequence of this might be that in, fa that, that in fact we see a progressive slide into a one-state solution, which is not necessarily one that would be secular and democratic immediately. I mean, it would probably remain essentially an ethno-religious state with a very strong, uh, you know, um, theocratic theocratic imprint if if we if not fully theocratic certainly uh more theocratic as the days go by though but that's actually unless it's really a full system of theocratic oppression iran style and i don't think that you could really do that in tel aviv i don't see how that would happen uh unless the you beach lose is that. too tempting yeah exactly i mean i think that what you would have is progressively a necessary inclusion of the different parts, uh, and by this I certainly do not mean just Palestinians and or Muslims or Christians, but you would need to find a way back into the political fold of, you know, progressive Jews, uh, reformist Jews, gay Jews, transgender Jews, I mean, every Jew that does not jibe with this coalition would need to be given some sort of space back into the democratic Israel. American policy towards Israel has been heavily shaped by 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 you know pro-Israel uh, lobbying support, the apacification of Israeli policy, um, and of course Cold War politics and these kinds of things. Of course, Israel was very useful for the United States uh, in its various proxy uh, conflicts with the Soviet Union, and but and the American Jewish community has been for decades now, um, you know, very skeptical of the the right wing, the slow right or slow but accelerating right wing lurch of Israeli politics. And but willing to give it a pass because, as we say, it's mushpocha. Uh, and nowadays, you're seeing you're seeing some serious breaking uh, of that of this taboo, so to speak. Um, and where that goes, if that really has staying power, if people are really, if 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 sort of your mainstream, you know, your mainstream middle class liberal American Jew uh, is willing to wake up and see the maybe not the full eradication of Israel, but a, a semi-eradification 
uh, of Israeli politics. That could that, that's the big question mark is and how that will then affect American policy and how that might influence what's going on in Israel. Because, of course, people like Netanyahu want nothing more than every every Jew to come to Israel. But of course, Israel is nothing without its diaspora putting political pressure uh, in their home countries in France and the UK and Australia and the United States, et cetera. Uh, if that starts to break, if that diaspora homeland connection starts to break, that's, I think, where we're going to see some real, what maybe what you've discussed about this, uh, a, a progressive hope. Uh, so what do you think we have coming for uh, next week? What will, yeah. what do you think? Well, of, of course, of course, uh, a lot of places will still be burning, I think, next week. We're going to have, I think, more fallout or more more to talk about in terms of the, the collapse of the grain deal, because uh, later this week, uh, Vladimir, Putin is, Vladimir Putin is having a, a conference with African leaders. And of course, he's going to be making a push for selling Russian grain, you know, saving, saving, saving uh, African countries uh, from both inflation and food scarcity with Russian grain instead of Ukrainian grain. Uh, so I think we're going to be seeing more developments. There will be interesting to see uh, where public and political support in these various countries that are so reliant on stable food prices and stable food supplies from Ukraine and Russia. Uh, how, if and how those change vis-a-vis uh, -vis the war in Ukraine, based on what happens in the in the wake of uh, this, the end of this grain deal. I actually hate talking about climate. I feel like you know an old lady that just sort of runs out of topics and talks about the weather. But uh, it is really quite um, it's quite imposing. I mean, the, the extremes are quite imposing, and the kind of weather patterns we're seeing uh, are are quite frightening. Are quite frightening. There'll always be the weather to talk about, and everybody always wants to talk about the weather. And as I believe Mark Twain said, everyone talks about the weather, but no one ever does anything about it. You've been listening to Euroscopic with William Bluecroft and Martin Gack, written by us, produced by us, and edited by me. If you liked what you heard, like us, subscribe to us, leave us a comment, tell us what you think, and share us with a friend. You can find us at Substack, that's euroscopic.substack.com, and our podcast wherever podcasts are heard. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week.